Hi, Julie. Hi, Lisa. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing great. Happy Heart Health Month. It's toward the end of February, and we've been, um, as always, uh, observing Heart Health Month by trying to bring articles and material to our social media platforms and to our runners. And yeah, today is no exception. We have a terrific guest on our podcast today. His name is Mark Busiak. And Mark is well known not only as a coach in the Chicago area, but he is one of the members of the very esteemed Boston Marathon Quarter Century Club, which means that he's run over 25 consecutive Boston marathons, which is amazing. And speaking of heart health, he also has the um, esteemed title of being um, someone who has run the most consecutive Boston marathons with a cow heart valve. So Mark is going to talk about that. That's right. Yes. In case somebody didn't hear that, that is like, it's, uh, it's amazing. So, so yeah, it's, uh, you know, we love to talk to people who run a lot of, of Boston marathons. Um, and Mark has the added distinction of running it, uh, consecutively through a challenge of, of, of heart surgery. Yeah. And his story, similar to Dave McGilvery's story is someone who, you know, led, leads a very, very healthy life, um, doing quote, all of the right things and nonetheless not immune to heart disease. And we talk about this a lot we don't mean to be Debbie Downers, but you know, it's, it's important for people to recognize that none of us are immune to any of these heart issues. And certainly Kelly Redmond taught us all that when she was on our podcast a few months ago and in honor of heart health month, if you haven't listened, we encourage you to go back and listen to her story. And, and she's doing very well, by the way, guys. Um, it's important, I think, because we all feel a little bit, I think, a sense of almost superiority about our health in that, well, I'm a runner, I'm a marathoner, I do all the things. And when I fuel, I'm fueling for the purpose of my runs and I really take care of myself. And we're here to say with these situations, it's, it's not at all something that's necessarily under anyone's control. A lot of times it's simply genetics, bad luck. And that's why it's important to make sure that you regularly get checkups, physicals, and if heart disease at all runs in your family, even if you're younger, don't hesitate to head over to get uh, evaluated by a cardiologist. Yeah. And Mark talks about that too. That's how he caught his issue is he would have an annual physical that included, um, I think it sounds like I have to go back and listen, but I think it sounded like it was through just through his primary care physician um, having an EEG and that's how his issue was caught. And it's something that um, was there since birth, but was not an, an issue. was not causing issues or not detectable until one particular year. And, and so that's why it's important that if you've got had a, had a checkup and you've been cleared to stay on top of it, had to have regular checkups. For sure. So this episode, Mark not only talks about his heart health, but he also talks a lot about tips for the Boston course, running the Boston marathon. And it's just a really nice hype episode to get excited about Boston, because I don't know about you, Lisa, but this is always the point in my training where you know, a little less than halfway through, uh, two months to go and it's still winter. And it's just a little hard at this point to get super excited about the race because there's still more to go, more 
tough runs and not so great weather and listening to someone like Mark talk about Boston, it gets, it gets me excited and helps me remember why we do this, why on the cold, dark mornings, we're out there running, why some, even though some of our runs aren't so great, sometimes we will be ready for race day on April 18th. And so it's always fun to listen to people and just chat about Boston and uh, kind of review all of the fun things about the course and, and the things we need, we can and need to work on between now and race day. Yeah. And we're almost to March. And I always feel like once we get to March, I feel like we start to get into that home stretch. So we're, we're almost there. And um, hopefully uh, March is meteorolog- meteorological spring. So I'm hoping that the weather starts to turn a little bit and, um, and, you know, we start to get excited again, feel like we're getting a little bit closer as we head into March. So Lisa, how's your training going, by the way? It's okay. It's, it's, you know, it's, uh, it's funny because, you know, we just did Boston, you know, less than six months ago. I feel like it's fresh in my mind. So I feel like it's almost, you know, redundant more than other years. So, um, I'm getting there. I I've got to get some long runs under my belt. It's a little bit later than, than normal, I think, um, just for whatever scheduling issues, but, um, but it, it's it's going well, and I'm getting excited and starting to think about our plans for Boston. I booked our my flight. I know you booked your flight, um, so that that's exciting. So it's it's been nice to have um, a shorter period of time between Boston. So it doesn't feel like it's been so long since we were there. Yeah, so true. I um, am also getting excited because we've been talking a lot with a fellow podcaster, and it looks like we're going to be able to do some type of. Uh, live podcast event the Saturday before the Boston Marathon. We don't quite have the details yet, but as soon as we do, we will announce it. And we're hoping to make it free. Um, It's important to us to bring everyone free content. And we want those who are in Boston to be able to enjoy the experience without having to deal with ticket prices and whatnot. And we're happy to do it. We're excited to do a meet and greet um, while being able to provide information in addition to our shakeout run, which we will do again, huge success last time. We hope to repeat and have even more people this time. And we will again be doing that on Sunday morning, April 17th, which is also Easter Sunday. So we're gonna try and figure out a way to make sure we have a shakeout run, but do it in a way that won't uh, prevent people from going to church services for those who wanna do that. I. I'm pretty sure we can figure that out. What do you think, Lisa? Yeah, I mean, I seem to recall that um, I think some of the churches nearby offer different times for services, so we can hopefully fit it in between that either before or after people uh, people head to head to services. But yeah, it's a this is not only Easter, but we also have Passover weekend this year, and that happens every few years where we get the holidays um, at the same weekend as Boston. So that's always a little bit tricky, I think, for everybody to navigate, um, family obligations and, um, you know, religious observances and, and, uh, and, and running and running the marathon. So we will certainly, um, be cognizant of that and try to work around that. Yeah. And so for those listening who observe Passover and need some recommendations for carb loading, uh, while still um, not eating leavened bread, uh, we're happy to talk to you and provide some suggestions. Sweet potatoes and potatoes are your friend. Those are great carb sources. It's definitely a little tricky, but certainly not um, something that can't be done. And and we've done it in the past. Um, Definitely just another monkey wrench in the fueling um, department. But speaking of fueling, and this is something I I meant to mention and just 
talking about it, I wanted to reiterate this. Last week we had on our podcast, Kelsey Bookman-Pontius. She was great. And she really reiterated something. And I am noticing it with a lot of the runners we're working with. So I just want to reiterate it to those listening. Even if you're not feeling hungry on a run, let's say you're running for like an hour and 20, an hour and 30 minutes. And it's a fast workout where you're doing a lot of um, intervals. That is a great opportunity to practice your nutrition in addition to the long run. And why is that? That's because our bodies respond to nutrition differently when we're running at race pace or faster than when we're running our long, slow distance LSD pace. So think of over the next several weeks while doing those tempo and or track workouts, if any of those workouts involve longer intervals, which they should at this point, bring along your nutrition and practice taking it every 35 minutes. It's a great opportunity to troubleshoot and see what works and what doesn't even better when doing a lot of these workouts, of course, many of which are on the track. What a convenient way to just have your nutrition there when you're doing those loops. If you're someone that's just not in the mood to deal with it and carry it with water every time. Can't emphasize this enough. Kelsey um, emphasized it a lot last week as well, that Really, it's it's not going to benefit us, the fueling, unless we practice with it first. And even though our stomachs may be able to tolerate fueling on race day, if you don't practice, imagine the possibilities if you do practice and you are able to train your gut to really process that nutrition even better. Imagine how much better you'll be able to perform. So think of it that way instead of, well, it's never been a problem with me before. Think of it as maybe I can do even better with my nutrition if I practice it first. Yeah. And related to what we were just discussing, if you are going to have some type of different diet on the weekend of the marathon, like if you are observing Passover, start practicing that now. So don't, you know, have that dinner beforehand that doesn't have, uh, you know, any leavened bread or any, whatever you're going to be avoiding. Some people eat rice, some people don't, but if whatever you think you're going to be eating, um, that, that weekend of the marathon, try that now and, and try that for, you know, a few days in a row, just to make sure that, um, that your, your GI system cooperates. Yeah. And just like matzah, just avoid that. Just find alternative sources. That's like the worst. <laughs> First of all, it's the worst. Not food. a good carb. I hate it. Nope, not a good carb. No. Not a good carb. <laughs> all right. Well, Lisa, I hope you have a great week and uh, we're excited to bring everyone Mark Busiak. Have a great week, Julie. Bye. Bye. Mark Busiak, welcome to the Run Farther and Faster podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you. I'm, uh, it's my honor and pleasure to be here and to uh, share some of my experience with your, with your listeners. All right. So, Mark, we're just going to dig right in. The reason we're having you on today is because you have an incredible Boston streak. Why don't you share with our listeners a little bit about your Boston Marathon streak? Well, uh, I ran my first Boston Marathon in 1980, April of 1980. I was 19 years young, and I paid $5 for the entry fee. And there was only one T-shirt that you could buy. And uh, I paid $5 for that T-shirt. So total expenditure, $10. There was almost no other souvenirs. And um, I'm proud to say the T-shirt 43 years later, still fits. <laughs> so, but um, I've successfully completed the last 42 consecutive Boston marathons. Wow. And that's, you know, you, 
Yeah, that's we thought we were doing pretty well, but that's, you know, 42. And and just, um, you know, you kind of touched on the changes over over the years and how not only, you know, the marathon has changed in, in many, many different ways. Um, but what about what about your training when you think back on that first year that you ran it as a 19 year old? When you look back on that, what, what are some of the memories that you have both of kind of your training and preparation for the race and also the experience of that first time running Boston Marathon? Well, uh, as far as the training, uh, it's changed significantly over the 43 years. I've learned a lot more. Uh, every year I run the Boston Marathon, uh, I learn something. Uh, sometimes I learn a lot. And uh, you can never stop learning. It's a very strategic course. It's a very difficult course. So someone who lives in a totally flat area, it's... Uh, uh, you know, it's tremendous uh, uh, when you get out to Boston with the hills, it's a totally different world. Um, as far as the course, when I was 19, boy, I, you know, I had four years of running experience uh, through high school. I started uh, August 25th, 1974, first year of cross country practice at Gordon Tech High School. And I haven't stopped. I have over 135,000 miles on my body and still counting. Uh, once in a while, I have to go in and get parts replaced like hips and hearts and things like that. But we'll get to that in a moment. Um, but it was, I was so nervous the night before I picked up the phone and I called my high school coach. And I said, coach, I'm getting on the next plane to go home. I'm so nervous. I can't run. I can't run. I mean, I'm, I can't run. Bill Rogers is going to be there. And these other runners are going to be there. I said, uh, I'm ready to go home. And he says, you just run like Mark Busiak runs and you'll do great. <laughs> and I liked it. So I returned. And I liked it after the second year. And so I returned. So I, I've kept returning after 42 years. And now I have 42 and counting. So we got about two months before this year. <laughs> so Mark, what is your secret to, um, I mean, you mentioned you've had some replacements here and there, of course, but what is your secret to maintaining your streak? How have you been able to do that year after year? And please share with our listeners your age. Yeah, well, I'm 61 years young, so starting at 19 and uh, continuing. Uh, so I've been doing it, uh, what, more than two-thirds of my life. Um, so uh, I would say, you know, is there a secret? Uh, I, I don't know if there's a secret. There's lots of elements. Think of a big stoop like they used to give out beef stew at the end of the Boston Marathon, but they, they ceased doing that a long time ago. But think of a big stew. There's so many ingredients that goes into that stew. But there's a lot of things you could do physically, but mentally, you have to be prepared. If you're not prepared mentally, then physically, you're not going to be ready. But one of the things I do, I and it doesn't matter if you're a Boston marathoner or a Chicago marathoner or a 5K person, uh, a weekend jogger, um, you, what you have to do, what, it's four parts. You have to plan, 
make a good plan, have goals, have reward, and then have downtime and recovery time. So those are the four elements, not for Boston Marathoners exclusively, not for Olympians, but for anyone. If you don't have those four elements, uh, myself as a coach, I instill that in my runners. Yeah, as a coach and as quite, you know, as somebody who has quite a lot of experience as well. So, so you've lived it. You talked about, you know, you have to prepare mentally. How do you prepare? Maybe you don't need to anymore since you've done it so many times, but how, how do you prepare mentally for Boston? How, how have you done that over the years? How do you recommend your runners do that? That's a really important, we agree that's, you know, once you put in the miles and you get to the start line healthy, that's, that's one big part of it, but, but then it's, then it's mental. So how do you prepare mentally? So mentally, there's several things you could do. Uh, you could write a contract to yourself and saying, uh, I'm going to dedicate the next five months to training. Uh, I'm going to run X amount of days per week. And um, my reward is X. And you sign up. And you put it on your refrigerator and you see it every day. That's one way to prepare. Um, uh, having goals and having rewards is great motivation. Um, another way mentally is, uh, when you're running, uh, I have a course in Chicago that's totally flat, but it has two turns on it when at the end of my run and I'm mentally prepared. There's the right on Hereford. And there's the left on Boylston. So I race simulate. When I do hills, I picture myself going up Heartbreak Hill, strong and powerful. So you have to use mental imagery, not even before, not only before your training, but while you're training and putting in your miles. So Mark, the question I have mentally, though, for you is because you've done this so many years in a row, is there ever a time when you feel, especially in the middle of winter in Chicago, how do you stay motivated day to day, year after year, um, particularly when it's, it's the same race every year? And especially the, during these times when, you know, people's running has either been a source of comfort or a source of frustration over the last few years, how do you mentally stay motivated and able to focus year after year on the same goal? Uh, that's a very good question. I'd be happy to answer that. So this is my 48th consecutive winter in the city of Chicago. So I'm ready for it. <laughs> I know how to prepare um, from winter clothing at REI, go to REI and get some good winter clothing, good winter running clothing. Um, I have a, a winter diet that keeps me healthy. And one of the biggest mistakes runners do is they know in the summertime and in hot temperatures to hydrate because they feel thirsty. Well, it's even more important to hydrate in the winter because you don't feel thirsty, but you still need the hydration. So, um, but to get out there and do it, uh, you have to have uh, initial goals, intermediate goals, and a final goal. And in this case, the final goal is the finish line on Boylston Street. So you have to make every day count. 
and there's some days you don't want to go out there, but then you have to trick yourself. How do you do that? Say, hey, the schedule called calls for eight miles or 10 miles today. But you know what? Work or this or that, I'm not feeling real good. Instead of doing eight to 10 miles, I'm going to do eight to 10 minutes. And if I feel bad, I'll go home. But I at least start. So, and some days you got to be honest with yourself. Don't be lazy, but be honest. And what you want to do is, you don't have to run fast every day. You don't have to run far every day. And you don't even have to run every day, but you have to do something. And you get out there and 10 minutes turns into 10 miles. Yeah, what, what does your training look like? Like right now, middle of, you know, Boston training cycle, what does your training look like? And has it changed as, as you've gotten older and become a master's runner? And, you know, I know we are both master's runners and we found we need some more recovery. Yeah. We've had to change our training approaches over the year. What does your training look like now? And how has that changed over the years for you? Uh, thank you. Uh, it's changed in many ways. So I'm no longer doing my 80, 90, 100, 110 miles a week on single, not double workouts, but on one workout, one running workout a day. So you run smarter, not, and you run smarter with less, uh, less mileage. Uh, I probably don't do over 50 miles, uh, a week at my peak Boston. Um, here we are two months uh, away from race day. Uh, like I like to call it, it's, it's marathon day in the Commonwealth. And um, uh, so I'm up to 10 miles right now. And Saturday, uh, I'm planning on doing 12. So now I'm starting the ascent. Um, uh, my training program, the road to Boston, um, and the runners in that, uh, from downtown Chicago, we have to drive one hour outside of the city to find hills. So a lot of people have them right outside their doorstep, but every Saturday we're commuting an hour out into, uh, what they call hills in Chicago, uh, to get ready for um, to, to get ready for Patriots Day. Is that in West Chicago? Is that where you do you go to West Chicago? I was recently in West Chicago and I was surprised at how many hills I found there. Like um, Wheaton that, area. That's one, yeah, there's uh, there's one. That's one of the places you could go west, you could go northwest, and you could go southwest. But uh, uh, Coach Mark knows where to go. <laughs> Yeah. Tell, yeah. tell us a little bit about your, your training program. So tell us about your, you know, what you do as a coach and your training program and, um, you know, wh where that is right now. If you're running together as a group, if you're doing it you know, virtually, what does what your training program look like? Well, I use my 48 years of running experience and my 65 career marathons. And I just don't train Boston marathoners, uh, runners and walkers of all ability. I have people who finished the Chicago Marathon who didn't run one step of the Chicago Marathon. They walked the entire thing. So um, my program is based not by having hundreds or thousands of people in it, 
you get coach Mark and it, I take it back 48 years ago to high school cross country practice or a high school cross country team. And you have about 20 to 40 people and the coach knows everybody's name and they know their strength and their weaknesses and what they have to work on. So uh, you don't have to live in Chicago to train with Coach Mark. I have people across the country and throughout the world who's been training with me. And um, we start with a four-page questionnaire. And uh, I get to know my runners. My runners know me. And um, um, it's a wonderful experience. I have the, I have the ease. I, I empower. I encourage. And I entertain, so we have a good time. <laughs> that's important. That that's very important, and and it also um, you know highlights the importance of of knowing your runners, and that's such an important um, you know no one plan or one approach fits for everybody. So the fact that you know your runners and you understand what their experience, their goals, their injury threshold, all of that, um, you know, is is so important. And then you bring to the table all of your experience and. I would imagine, particularly for your Boston Marathon runners, your your experience running Boston and knowing uh, the Boston course is is so is so valuable to them. And and tell us a little too. So when, once you run twenty five consecutive Boston marathons, you get to be a member of a very special club. What is it? Tell us about that that club and and what what's entailed. We've actually we met when we were in Boston last in October. We met um, a woman who has run. She's the second most consecutive for women, Joy, and she was telling us all about you know the, that they had had a dinner together. There's like a whole dinner. She knew other everybody else in the club, and it was a very close knit group of of people. So tell us a little bit about the Quarter Century Club. Yeah. So. Uh, in Boston, there, there is uh, there is the Quarter Century Club, also known as the QCC, and, and I'll tell you about the modification in a moment. Sounds like a yoga class modification, but this is a very special group of runners. Um, we could uh, some sports writers have said this is the best of the best or the most elite marathoning club in the world. These are runners who have completed, as you said, 25 consecutive Boston marathons. So uh, we have a new logo or a new motto in our club. Uh, I'm vice president of the club. Our founder is Ron, who lives out in Massachusetts and in Maine. And he came to the BAA um, some time ago, uh, and he he said to the BAA, you should have a quarter century club. And uh, the BAA considered it, and he said, yes. So um, we have runners from uh, throughout the United States, Canada, and Russia. Um, so it's a it's an honor and privilege to be a member and to be a, an officer of the club. I'm going to take one exception with the club. And as somebody who's run, this will be my 19th Boston Marathon, but had to take off 
a few years to have kids. I feel like we should have some kind of a, there maybe should be some, you know, now I've got to go for 25 consecutive from after I had my children, which is not a problem. And it's still a goal that I would love to, that, that actually, like you said, it's a, it's a very prestigious club that one, that's my, my next goal. I had, my original goal was to get to 10 consecutive. Um, and now my next goal is to get to that 25 consecutive and be a member of that club. But I will say uh, some of the women I think are, are at a little bit of a disadvantage when they miss years for having children. You bring up an extremely valid point, and uh, I don't make the rules, but uh, women, women who are in the club um, had ha uh, tougher obstacles in order, especially when it comes to motherhood, which is so, so important. And um, uh, it, uh, they're, I won't say they're at a disadvantage, they have to perform uh, even tougher than the men. So um, we welcome women. Maybe just a little longer. We may have, yeah. <laughs> may have to be a little longer. And, and you'll appreciate this. Um, we live near Bethesda, Maryland, which is where Ben Beach um, lives and runs. So we live, we run in the same area and Ben Beach is the, as the most consecutive Boston Marathon finisher. So I guess he'd be the top performer in the quarter century club and he lives right near us. So it's been an honor to get to see him progress through, um, through this and, and talk about challenges, but he's also been somebody who, you know, uh, has to, um, has had some challenges in making sure he completes those consecutive Boston marathons. So it's, it is, it is a very prestigious and very, um, accomplished club that you're in. Yeah. Well, uh, well, thank you. And, uh, uh, the members really support each other, and uh, uh, you know, with uh, we have over 110 active members. Uh, then we have we could say alumni members, people who um, uh, stopped marathoning or stopped Boston marathoning um, due to injury or other reasons. We we have some deceased members, of course, but. Um, there's, there's close to 150 people who have, uh, achieved 25 or more Boston marathons, a consecutive Boston marathon. So. And I understand to be consecutive, you have to finish within a certain time now too, which is a more recent, um, development from what I understand is that they have to finish in under, is it six hours? I think, or seven, the, there's you, some, I know. It's yeah. under it's under six hours. You're correct. Yeah. So it's not just getting to the finish line. It's also a time. So speaking of challenges, um, you certainly had a huge challenge in 2006. In 2006, you had heart surgery. And uh, it's quite amazing that in spite of having heart surgery that year, less than 11 weeks after having that open heart surgery, you were able to maintain your streak. Uh, this is Heart Health Month, of course. So can you share with us a little bit about um, what happened in mm -hmm. 2006, how you were diagnosed and um, what that surgery entailed? Because it's quite unusual. Yeah, well, thank you. Um, yes, uh, February is National Heart Health Month. Um, so I help celebrate that because on February 1st, 2006, I had open heart surgery at Northwestern Hospital in Chicago uh, with Dr. Patrick McCarthy, one of the most famous uh, cardiac surgeons in the world. Him and his team 
had a real good day on February 1st, so I could have a really great day in April. But what I've been doing for more than 30 years, um, uh, every year without fail, I would go for my annual physical. And that included an EKG, which is a quick, painless uh, test to see if your heart was in rhythm. And I was going to the same primary care physician and uh, he was outstanding. He was also at Northwestern Medicine. And um, I got the EKG, get the results instantly. And um, I knew the technician and she shook her head. And she goes, you know, we have a problem. And um, I said, go out and get another, uh, go out and get another machine. So she reeled one out, brought another one in. Same bad result. I was out of rhythm. I said, get a third machine. So I thought it wasn't me. It was at, uh, at 43 years of age, how could I have a bad heart being a marathoner with a healthy diet and so forth? People get heart disease two major ways. One, poor lifestyle, lack of exercise and terrible nutrition. The second way of getting heart disease is hereditary, bad DNA. Obviously, in my case, it wasn't the first between my running and my healthy diet. So my father, my uncle, my brother, my cousin, my second cousin, all have heart disease. And um, so more tests, more comprehensive tests. So it was determined not only was my heart out of rhythm, but my heart was leaking. I had, instead of a bicuspid, instead of, excuse me, instead of a tricuspid uh, valve with three flaps over my main valve, I only had two. Now, I had that since the first second of my life. So even though I was going in for this test for over 30 years, it never picked it up. So if I didn't keep going for that heart test, the EKG with my annual physical, um, they would have never found it. More runners die from undiagnosed heart disease than anything else. And it's not only the weekend jogger, look what happened at the New York Marathon several years ago that an elite male runner went down at seven miles and never got up. So, and even the, even the Boston Marathon, they would give you, not with five or 10 or 30,000 runners, but when they had uh, less than 300 runners, they gave everyone a physical the morning of the marathon in Hopkinton. They haven't done that in decades. But the BAA, if you read the history, you got a physical the morning of the race. It's impossible to do with 30,000 people now. You know, so Wow. And people are yeah. complaining about um, COVID tests in October. Imagine their complaints about having to have a physical. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So <laughs> what happened was with mine, with my heart disease, they said, your heart is leaking but we don't have to operate right now. 
And, but I would go twice a year for a more comprehensive test, um, an echocardiogram, and that really determined you know, over time, my heart was, le the leak was getting more severe. And then my cardiologist said, you have to go see Dr. McCarthy. And he said, you know, we got to do the surgery, but you know, in the next few months, we don't have to do it immediately. And I said, oh, Dr. McCarthy, um, could we do it April 21st? And he says, well, why April 21st? We're in January. I said, well, on April uh, 19th, I run the marathon in Boston. And then on the 20th, I fly back to Chicago. And on the 21st, we have the surgery. And he said, uh, Mark, um, uh, you can't be training at your level. Um, uh, it would be dangerous. And I said, well, okay. I said, let's have, let's have the surgery immediately. Let's go. I'm ready tomorrow. Let's do it. And he said, well, we can't do it tomorrow, but I did it two weeks later, February 1st uh, at Northwestern in Chicago. And how soon after that surgery, you back to training because you did get to the star line, obviously in April. And you know, this, mm -hmm. this story also harkens to, I'm sure you obviously know, cause you, you know him, but Dave McGilvery, same thing, had heart, open heart surgery several mm -hmm. months before the race and said, am I gonna be able to get back to the start line? And he did. So what, how, how soon were you able to start training and what did your training look like that year? And how did you get to the start line? Well, again, the goal was to get to the starting line and to do it safely. So. Um, one of the things I did before I left for the hospital, uh, for the, for the surgery, you know, two weeks after we were planning it, um, I set up my mag trainer on my bicycle in the living room. I set up my, uh, uh, uh my player and I was watch. I was ready for when I came home, I was going to start doing the exercise bike at home and watching videos of past Boston marathons. And at that time, you know, I had 26 years of uh, inventory of <laughs> Boston Marathon. But the, the hardest thing I ever, the hardest and most difficult thing I ever did in my life physically was uh, about, five or six hours after open heart surgery, getting out of the ICU bed, the intensive care unit bed, getting, getting out of bed and taking four steps to the chair in the corner of the room. I thought I was on the top of Mount Everest and everything else. Of course, you know, I had nurses with me and, but they knew, everybody knew the goal was to return to Boston that year. Not in two years, not in three years, but they were going to put me back there. So um, I slowly and carefully started off by walking, exercise, bike in my living room. And two weeks before the Boston Marathon with a friend, I walked a full 20 miles out in the forest preserves on the hills. So um, I was very careful wearing a um, heart monitor, but, um, you know, 
I certainly had concern and um, but um, thanks to Dr. McCarthy and his team, I was uh, I made it to the starting line. <laughs> it's really incredible. And also a reminder, I mean, certainly um, there are many folks out there this time of year, especially with uh, several people uh, dealing with illnesses, including COVID and other things. It's a great reminder that you know, your training doesn't always look like how it's supposed to be that, but that doesn't mean you can't get to the start line and, and do the thing. And your goal was reasonable. You wanted to finish the marathon and maintain your streak. You weren't running at all for time. You weren't comparing yourself to past seasons. You simply just listened to your body and worked with what you had and you got to the start line, you finished the race. And I think that's a great lesson for all runners who are facing challenges right now that it can be done. It may just not be look the way you have done it in the past, and that's okay. Yeah, I I, I totally agree with that. And you know, uh, my goal was to make it to the starting line. I didn't know if I was going to make it to the finish line. My wife met me at 16 miles, and she joined me for um, you know for that. And um, you know, one of the one of the greatest coaches in all of athletics. John, Mr. John Wooden, he was the basketball coach at the end at uh, UCLA, and he won like eight uh, NCAA championships in 10 years. It's never going to happen again. He had an expression, which I tell my runners and I tell myself, and this could apply to any jogger, runner, athlete in the world. And Mr. Wooden would say to, and especially the last two years, everything we went through with the pandemic, do not let the uncontrollables control your controllables. So do not let the uncontrollables control your controllables. So I could only do what I could do, and then we let Mother Nature do the rest. I was safe. I did it. Um, my time was five hours and 42 minutes. Um, it wasn't certainly my personal best of 2.30, but I consider it my um, not my personal fastest, but my personal best, and not my personal worst, because what I had to overcome. Absolutely. So can you share with our listeners what kind of heart valve you have in your heart and uh, mm -hmm. and how and how have you felt since having that? Have you had to have any additional surgeries? Um, so uh, during our discussion with Dr. McCarthy two weeks before surgery, you have to determine what kind of heart valve you could have. First of all, my heart valve was so badly damaged they could not repair it. So what do you do when you have a damaged part in your body or in your car or in your refrigerator <laughs> or an appliance? So if you can't repair it, you replace it. So I had the choice of having either a titanium valve, which would require me to be on blood thinners for every day for the rest of my life. and 
they said um, it should last the rest of your life or to have a, uh, an animal um, an animal valve. And I said, oh, I thought this was time for Shakespeare's um, uh, comic relief. I said, Dr. McCarthy, could I have a cheetah valve so I could beat the Kenyans? <laughs> and he looked at me and I just said, oh yeah, that's right. Cheetah's a sprinter. I, yeah, I want the valve that has the, of an animal that has the best endurance possible. And of course the best endurance land animal is the wolf. They run hundred to 150 miles a day. So he says, you can't have a wolf, but you could have a cow. So I got a cow vent and it keeps me moving along. Uh, I get tested every, every year. Um, and after 16 years, it's still functioning well. And there's not even a talk of having it uh, being replaced. So they said, I probably have the record for most consecutive Boston marathons, uh, 15 and counting with, uh, with a cow valve. <laughs> so probably, um, probably, I would say that's probably, that's a, that's a pretty uh, definite statement there. I would guess um, we haven't heard of anybody else running that many consecutive marathons or, or, you know, Boston marathons with a cow valve. So that's fabulous. I want to back up just for a moment because you mentioned your wife had jumped in with you and we want to give her some, some credit too. You were mentioning she is also a, a Boston marathon streaker or has, has many Boston marathons under her belt. She has 13, did you say? She has 13 uh, completion. That's, that's great. Do you, do you train together? Uh, yes, we do. Yeah. Is she going to be at Boston this year as well in 2022? Uh, she's, uh, she actually had hip surgery, so she's not marathoning, but she's going to do the 5K. So I'll get up oh, early on Saturday morning to support her in her 5K, and she'll be... Uh, uh, on the course cheering me on, uh, probably from our friend's house uh, at the 24 and a half mile mark, Arthur and Barbara at Anthony's townhouse. That's my uh, big cheer section for me. That's a good place to have to have a cheer section. So, and, and tell us too a little bit about you coach um, for Erica's Lighthouse for a charity team now, right? Is that correct? And tell uh, us a little bit about correct. that team. Um, uh, I'm honored. Uh, I'm honored and happy to be Erica's Lighthouse's uh, coach and program director for their Chicago Marathon charity team. Uh, thank you for asking. Uh, they have programs around the country and throughout the world for teenage depression and suicide prevention. They take no money from the government and. Uh, their marathon charity team, which I started eight years ago, now accounts for over one third of their financial budget. So uh, we have runners from around uh, the country and even uh, internationally. Um, the Chicago Marathon date is October 9th. Uh, we still have entries and you have to raise less than $2,000 to. Uh, hit the minimum requirement, a lot less than Boston. And I'm your coach. 
uh, regardless if you're out of state or out of country or in Chicago, we would love to have you. But uh, the thing, I'm not running my fastest times anymore, but I, the thing I love about running is sharing my knowledge and my passion for running with runners of all ability, especially first-time charity runners. Yeah, we can attest to that too. We always say that, especially now as, as we're getting later in our running careers, our own achievements are much less uh, satisfying than the achievements of our runners. And that includes all of those, all of our runners that, you know, are starting, just beginning, watching those runners find find that um, satisfaction that we've found in all of the rewards that we've gotten from, from running, um, you know, very uh, we can we can relate to that, and we will include that information on um, Erica's Lighthouse uh, in our in our show notes for any listeners who are interested in finding out more. And um, we highly recommend Chicago Marathon is a is a fabulous fall marathon, so we highly highly recommend it. And like you said, as an added bonus, they get they get you as a coach, which is um, really valuable to a charity team to have an experienced coach leading those runners, many of whom are are, are often first time um, marathoners. Um, and we also just wanted to ask you any any Boston Marathon tips for those that are getting ready, speaking of first-time marathoners, especially the first-time marathoners getting ready to head to Boston. Anything mm. you'd recommend they do or see in Boston? Mm. Anything that, you know, any special tips that you have based on your many, many years of experience that they should make sure um, to take note of as they're planning their trip to Boston? Uh, well, the, probably the most, uh, I don't want to say it's a mistake, but Many people, uh, maybe they don't have the time or the vacation time or so on, or family obligations, work obligation. Do not make this a business trip, meaning you fly in and you fly out. So what I recommend is spend as much time in Boston as possible. Um, uh, Mayor Menino, uh, a former mayor of Boston uh, a couple of decades ago um, when I was there and I met him and his wife and I introduced myself. I said, I'm Mark from, I'm Mark from Chicago. She goes, we're glad you're here and spend more money. We need it. <laughs> okay. But seriously, Boston is a tremendous city. The people love the marathons, love the marathon and the marathoners. So you'd be treated like a rock star. And it's the birthplace of America with the shot around the world and the historic things and the arts and so forth. I could go on and on. So a lot of people have a very short visit in Boston. Uh, my wife and I uh, were there almost one week because we love the city so much and we love the people. And also if you leave time before the race, it gives you more time to, to settle in. And then afterwards you have the reward. And I'll tell you where to go for the reward in a moment too. Um, well, right now, my favorite place, and maybe the real reason why I keep running the Boston Marathon besides the wonderful people along the course and the volunteers and the great job the BAA does on the corner of Prince and Salem Street. Prince like spaghetti, Salem like the witches in the middle of the North End is the 94-year-old world-famous Bova Bakery. 
and it's open 24 hours a day. Ralphie and Connie, and uh, they're great in there. And Vicky, they all know me. They go, Mark, when you coming? When you coming? We'll bake you something special. So, What's your favorite item there? Oh, we have a tie for first. Uh, the peanut butter bars are outrageous. If you like Reese's peanut butter cups, Bova's peanut butter bars are great. Plus, they travel home well. Uh, the tiramisu and the cannolis are great, too. Um, uh, we say you could run your PR by 10 minutes if you eat the bova bread before the race. I don't know if that's true or not, but uh, it's uh, it's the only bakery that's open 24-7. They don't even have the key to the front door. They can't lock it if they want. So, Ralphie, it's Easter weekend this year. Make sure you have the peanut butter bars ready for me. I'm coming at you. But That's a great to... recommendation. Most people um, go to Mike's Pastry. So thanks for that uh, extra recommendation for those who want to try something new. Yeah, and if you're out late, they're open. <laughs> so, but uh, I think as far as training tips for Boston, it, you cannot do too many hills. So hills, hills, and hills. Coach Mark says, what's the only thing better than running for runners? And that is running hill. So even if you're training for a flat, fast course like Chicago and trying to get your BQ, uh, hill running will always strengthen every part of your body and make you a, a, a tougher runner. Um, Wait, Mark, let me let me just interrupt for a second though. You would say though, there's I just want to make sure we're not always absolute because I know you would agree with this. Hills, hills are great unless you are someone that is vulnerable to injury due to hills because of Achilles issues and whatnot. And then you want to make sure you run the hills smart, but not always always running hills. That, that, I, I agree with you for a hundred percent. Yeah, there's always the asterisk, you know, if you're if you're injured or you have, or you're injury prone, then you have to adjust to, uh, to, um, to compensate that you don't get re-injured. But if you're, if you're in gear and you're ready to go, then um, hills are great because you're going to find them at Boston. Um, so many people run so quickly in Boston, the first 5K, 10K, first half marathon, uh, up to 17 and a half miles. And you take that turn um, at the fire station at approximately 17 and a half, and they're spent and burnt because the first 17 miles are downhill mostly. And then you have four to five miles of uphill. So uh, it's a very difficult course if you don't run it intelligently. Um, I've run it numerous times running negative splits. And you really have to hold back the first 17 miles to get ready for uh, 17 to 22. So be cautious on race day and you have to be so disciplined in order to run a successful race. Uh, I let everybody pass me the first 15, 16 miles. I'll catch in the last 10. <laughs>
And that's a great feeling that when that happens. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And and that's definitely advice from somebody who's run this course many many times, and you understand it's hard to you said it's hard to convince people of that when we are you know trying to encourage runners to to execute that type of strategy, and and they don't always um, believe it or or want to execute it. But for somebody who's run it so many times to to back that up, that is uh, you know that's that is definitely one of the keys to having a successful Boston. So um, mm-hmm. so Mark, thank you so much for sharing so much of your knowledge and really your story with us. And you really left us with so many uh, important lessons and important takeaways. Um, And we are just in awe of not only your accomplishment of your consecutive Boston marathons, but what you've gone through to, to continue that streak and um, your, your positive outlook and um, what you've given back to the running community by coaching runners and by helping charity runners complete their marathon, whether it's Chicago or, or another marathon um, and all of the runners that you've coached. So we really appreciate having you on, on the podcast and we hope that we will get to connect with you when we are all in Boston in April. Well, uh, you'll know where to find me. Uh, I'll be at the finish line, uh, God willing and fingers and toes crossed. And if I'm not, after that, I'm at the Bova Bakery. So, and- uh, That's what we said, we'll find you Bova. <laughs> One final thought, if any of uh, your listeners have any questions and on Boston or on running or whatever, or they're coming to the Chicago Marathon, uh, my webpage is theroadtoboston.info. So theroadtoboston.info, uh, you can connect with me there. So thank you. We will definitely link your information in our show notes as well as um, Erica's Lighthouse Charity. Well, thank you for your support. Thank you for uh, asking me to be on. And uh, uh, I love running. It's my life. It's my passion. And anything I could do to motivate and inform my fellow runners, uh, uh, I'm ready to, uh, to help. Thank you, Mark. It's been a pleasure. And we'll see you up in Boston. Good luck with the rest of your training. Yeah, thank you. Take care. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Run Farther and Faster Boston Marathon podcast. We want to give a special thanks to our editor, Aaron Bryan. And if you enjoyed this episode and enjoy listening to our podcast, please share it with others and please leave a review if you haven't done so already on iTunes. Thanks for listening and have a great week.